7. But before that, there's a, we're going to read a, just a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, first of all. Because for the last few weeks between chapter 2 and chapter 7, it's been a little kind of interruption to what Paul's really, uh, his purpose for writing. And we're just going to put the two ends together so as we get the case. So 2 Corinthians in chapter number 2, first of all. Um, could, I, could I just say how good it is to see the kids this morning? Isn't it lovely? We're always glad to see Ezra and Isaac and Seth, but to have a few more with us this morning, you've done a great job, kids. Well done. It's a long meeting for you. I know it's a long meeting for you, so we're not going to be too much longer, and then you'll be able to be out and about. And again, could somebody listen for the coffee machine, please? I set it, but I didn't do very well on Thursday and last Sunday, so if you listen to the coffee machine, if it's not going by 10 past 12, could somebody go and put it on? So... Let's read in 2 Corinthians in chapter number 2 and Paul's writing because he's anxious to hear news of what's happening with the assembly at Corinth. 2 Corinthians is not 2 Corinthians, if you see what I mean. There's been at least one more letter between uh, Paul and and the Corinthians and it's called the severe letter, that's what they call it. He's written in 1 Corinthians to do some correction but he's also written another one to quite plain and straightforwardly address some of the big issues that's in the, 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 the assembly at Corinth, particularly the false teachers that are trying to discredit him. And there's been a bit of a relationship breakdown between Paul and, and, and um, the church at Corinth. And he sent an intermediary, if you like, he sent a man called Titus to go and find out how the people at Corinth have reacted to his severe letter. So Paul's kind of waiting, anxious to hear news from Corinth, from Titus, about what's happened when they received his letter. So he doesn't know whether they've received it well or they've received it badly. And so the thing is, the first thing in his mind is, I want to hear what Titus has got to say. So and he starts his journey back towards Corinth, but stops off in a place called Macedonia. Look at verse 12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I found not Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went from thence into Macedonia. Nobody had a bigger heart for the gospel than Paul. Paul wanted to see the gospel preached. My heart's desire to pray to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And he comes to Troas and there's a great door open for the gospel. And you would think that's his priority. But he actually says, no, do you know what I'm going to do? I know the door's open for the gospel, but I've got something that's really burning in my heart that I need to sort out first. And it's how his relationship was with his brothers and his sisters. We need to keep things in perspective, folks. We really, really do. The world needs the gospel, doesn't it? It really, really needs the gospel. And would that we were much more passionate and zealous and looking for doors of opportunity. But we also have to remember that our relationships with our brothers and sisters are really important as well. Because God's delight on earth is the company of the Lord's people. And the unity that's amongst the Lord's people. The Lord wants to see his people together in unity. Isn't that right? Psalm 133, John 17. The Lord just wants his people to be in unity. And Paul says, listen, I'm not actually going to go with my gospel campaign. I'm going to go back and send Titus and find out what's happening in Troas. So between there and chapter 7, there's been a little kind of interjection. And now in um, chapter number 7, we're going to start to read from verse 2. 
Um, we're going to read from verse 2 to the end of the chapter. Listen carefully because we're not going to cover everything that's in this chapter. Not by any means. We're going to just get the bare bones. People that know me know I'm an old-fashioned stuck in the mud. That doesn't change much. And I've been brought up with a 1611 King James Version. And the English language in the King James Version is actually very difficult. And it's particularly difficult in 2 Corinthians. I find it. I love the King James Version because I think the effort to understand the language is more than rewarded by the richness of it. But I'm conscious that sometimes it can obscure the, the straightforward meaning to a modern mind. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 7, not in my preferred version, but I'm going to read it in the ESV because that helps us understand really in a much more contemporary way what Paul was getting at. He says, he says this, so he's, he's had some news from Titus. Finally, he's met up with Titus and Titus has brought the news from Corinth that in the main, his severe letter has been well received. They've listened to what Paul's saying, they've received it and they're not, they're not upset with him. They're not upset with him, that's basically. So here's what Paul says. This is in the ESV. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no man we have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. So you can almost hear him at the end of that paragraph breathe a big sigh of relief. He's been worried about how people have reacted to his message and the message has come back from Titus. They heard what you have to say and their heart is still open to you. He says this, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. So what he's saying is, while I've been waiting for the news, I've been quite upset. I've been, I've been right. And he says in another place, his spirit was upset as well. So his spirit and his body's upset. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. We won't have time to talk about it. See that word downcast? Do you know what it really means? It merely means depressed, down and out. Paul was so worried about his relationship with the Lord's people going sour that it got him down. He was really down in the dumps about it. He was actually depressed about the situation. I stopped for a minute because we need to remember that the Lord's people are subject to all kinds of afflictions in their mind. And it's possible for the Lord's people to get depressed. There's some, a school of thought that says that should never happen. I don't subscribe to that. Don't subscribe to that at all. There are people who just seem to be depressed all the time. That's not what Paul's saying. I don't mean that. But there are times when into a Christian's life, particularly in relation to spiritual things, they can become downcast and they can become depressed. So Paul's saying he got to that point where he was down and out, he was depressed, and it just seemed all dark to him. He's thinking that the Corinthians, his, his spiritual children, will want nothing more to do with him. And because that breach in relationship... It just got him to a place that was of great depression and darkness. You see, Paul's 
The big priority was to make sure that his relationship with the Lord's people was good. And anything that came in to breach the relationship between his Lord, the Lord's people got him right down. It got him right down. I wonder if that happens to me. I wonder if I have that same priority in my relationship with the Lord's people. But let's, show you, let's show you what happens. But God, who comforts the downcast, isn't that lovely? Comforted us by the coming of Titus. What am I saying? We're going to say there as we go on. When you get downcast and depressed, the first and the best place to go is to the Lord. Now, we're going to see that Titus brought him some relief, right? And when the Lord's people come to you and when you're in a dark place, I've, I've benefited many a time from the Lord's people coming to me in a dark place and praying with me and speaking to me and encouraging me, and that's a lovely thing. But Paul says, listen, there's nobody can comfort the downcast like the Lord. Why is that, folks? Because there's nobody so kind and understanding and sympathetic and tender and compassionate as the Lord with these people who are downcast. Remember, the, the broken reed, he wouldn't break. The dimly smoking flax, he wouldn't quench. And in our dark periods, there are people who help us, like Titus, who will bring us comfort. But the one that will really bring us comfort is the Lord. Because he's the one that's all wise, all loving, all compassionate. And I wanted to say that as a past because we won't have time to come back to that uh, as we go on. He comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, again, just for clarification, because we won't get it in detail, what he doesn't mean is salvation means forgiveness of sins and justification. That's not what he means. And he doesn't mean death means cast into hell. It just means preservation and rescue from a dark place. And death means to be lifeless and... and nullified in your spiritual life. And that's what he's saying. He's saying your godly grief produced repentance that leads to a, a rescue from the darkness you've been in and a rescue from your, from your difficulty. And without regret, whereas worldly grief, in other words, grief that's, that's just because you're, you're, you're a worldly kind of person, it just keeps you going into a place where you're spiritually useless. That, that's what it means. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, that's the, that's the person that they call a super apostle that's trying to... Um, 
trying to undermine and trying to discredit the Apostle Paul. He's saying, you know, I wrote it to you. It was not for the sake of the one that did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. In other words, you've taken the ministry well. You've taken the ministry well. I'm not writing to hurt people. I'm not writing to grieve people. I'm writing because I want things to be better. I want the relationship to be restored. That, that's what's in his mind. And beside our own, own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Now that was not the way he was feeling before Titus came. Before Titus came, he was depressed and he was worried and he was anxious and he had no idea what the reaction to the, 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 the ministry would be. But when Titus came and said, listen, they've taken the ministry, they, they still love you, he says, I have complete confidence in you. Titus brought a great message, didn't he? Titus was a great intermediary between two parties that had got kind of estranged because of a relationship breakdown. Isn't it wonderful when we can find some of the Lord's people that can do things like that? Isn't it? That can help maybe people that have broken relationships come together. So that's the reading. That is the most profitable bit of the, the morning, this morning from my ministry. We'll try and say one or two wee things about it just, just because uh, we've only a few minutes left. This passage, folks, is all about the grief that is caused by a broken relationship and the joy that is restored by a rescued relationship. Can you see that? Grief that is coming because of a broken relationship, but the joy that comes when a relationship is restored. I've actually found this a really difficult passage, folks, this morning. Why? Because I look back in my history, and I'm sure that there's relationships that I could have done a lot better to restore. Matter of fact, there's relationships that were broken that now somebody's been taken into heaven. I don't get the opportunity to restore. Because, you know, when you read the Bible, it's all about keeping good relationships, folks. Isn't it? It's all about God delights in good relationships. Well, he delights, first of all, in the relationship with himself. Isn't that right? Because that's what the garden was all about. The garden was all about the enemy disturbing, breaking the relationship that existed between Adam and Eve and God, that perfect relationship and innocence the devil wanted to destroy. And so God's primary purpose is that we are in a right relationship with him. That's, isn't that? Relationship's the big thing. And I know there's a very trite saying these days, Christianity is not about religion, it's about relationship. And it's said in a sort of trite way, uh, almost like a cliche. But if you start to think about that, that's probably really the truth, isn't it? That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So, so relationships are very much paramount in God's mind. 
particularly when it comes to us and him. That's why the gospel, folks, is so important. We must keep preaching the gospel. Because if people can have self-esteem or self-worth or deliverance from addiction, that's okay. But it's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is about the restoring of a relationship with, a, with God that has been broken by sin. And we must keep preaching the gospel of justification by faith through the cross and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is also interested in relationships in every other area of our life, isn't he? He's really interested in the relationships between a husband and a wife. Hmm? Uh, fathers and children. I don't know, uh, mothers and daughters. He's really interested in relationships in the family. And we must guard carefully our relationships in the family, folks. We really must, because that's another area that the devil's very keen. So we must guard our relationships in the family. But this one here is a relationship, not in the family or the workplace in the neighbourhood, but relationship that's come between a teacher and his the assembly that he's concerned about. There's, there's some things we need to know about Paul. Paul had apostolic authority, right? Paul's an apostle, which means that when he spoke, he spoke with the authority of the word of God. And when Paul spoke, you had to listen because he was speaking directly with a revelation from God. So that's gone now. That's gone now. So I'm, when I speak to you, or Deduzi speaks, or Andrew speaks, or, or, or uh, Sid speaks, or MG speaks, we're not speaking as apostles. We're not. We're not speaking as apostles. But when Paul spoke, he was speaking as an apostle of God. So when he's writing to the, Cor to the Corinthians with instruction and revelation, he's actually got an authority behind him that says, this is what God's saying. This is what God's saying. So this letter that he sent to Corinth, which is called the severe letter, it doesn't just carry the weight of Paul's reputation or experience, it carries the authority of God, and Paul's conscious of that. Paul's also a teacher, a very clear teacher of the word of God, and he loves to do that, and he loves to emphasise the importance of sound teaching, doesn't he? And teachers are really important, folks. I didn't used to think that when I was at school, but I do think that now, that teachers are really, really important because they lay into the lives of children and those that are learning the important foundational principles that they have to know to make progress and, and development in life. And some teachers are good and some teachers are bad. And no teacher is infallible. Isn't that right? Some teachers can get it wrong. And teachers are... Probably, well, I won't say too much about it because I know there's at least one teacher and two teachers at least in the audience today. So I won't say any more about teaching. But teaching is really important. And essentially, folks, that's what we try to do here, isn't it? But teaching is only of value in as much as it's compatible and consistent with the word of God. So if a teacher says something that's not... So Paul was a good teacher. Well, that's what I'm trying to say. But what I want you to know is, as we read 2 Corinthians, what we're seeing in Paul is the heart of a shepherd, folks. It's the heart of a shepherd. Now, in, second, uh, um, in Ephesians, it talks about the pastor teacher, doesn't it? The pastor teacher. Because it's important that we see that what Paul has got here is a relationship with these people. That's a relationship not of authority and not even of teaching. It's an authority of affection. He loves these people. Paul 
looks at the little flock of God at Corinth and he feels a shepherd's tenderness towards them. And when he sees them wandering and when he sees that breach of relationship, it causes him real, real grief. And this Second Corinthians, it's, it's how really a shepherd feels when there's some disturbance in the flock between him and the shepherd. And that's why I emphasised that word depressed because when Paul's, the shepherd's heart was broken because the relationship was disturbed between him and the flock, it just got him, so, it just got him down. I can see Paul waking up in the middle of the night you know, and the first thing that springs to his mind is, you know, what about the, what about the Corinthians? I can see him walking in the, the country one day and thinking, how am I going to get this relationship restored? And Paul was not just an apostle or a teacher, he was a shepherd, a pastor. Now folks, every local church should have pastors, okay? And, and, and again, modern day language can sometimes get corrupted so often somebody would come in and they'll say Deduzi are you the pastor here and he'll say no no I'm not the pastor here because we do what people mean by that in modern day is are you the CEO of this organization that's what they mean isn't it when they say that but pastors are actually really important amongst the flock of God isn't that right now if they come in and they said to Deduzi Deduzi are you one of the shepherds here I know what Deduzi's like, he wouldn't hold his head up and say, yeah, I'm one of the shepherds, but he would bow his head and say, yeah, yeah, the Lord's given me that responsibility, I'm a, I'm a shepherd here. And that's what's happening here. The, there's a breach between the shepherds and the flock, and it's broken the heart of the Apostle Paul. Now, he's been consistent with the teaching, he's been consistent with his authority, He's had to say some strong, straight things to the assembly for their good. But he's worried that in saying that, there's been a breach in the relationship between them and him. Now, folks, I can say to you, and please don't misunderstand me. I've known a lot of men who've been real shepherds of their flock, and I can tell you this. They wake up at the middle of the night worrying about all the, all, all the folks in the meeting. They do. And particularly when something goes wrong, or somebody's out of sorts, or there's some kind of disturbance, I can tell you right now that these shepherds of the flock, there's nothing more important in their mind than getting it sorted out. And there's nothing more drag them down like knowing that people won't sort out relationship problems. And Paul says, listen, until I know this is sorted, do you know, do you know how I've been feeling? I've been depressed. I've been depressed that we've got this breach in relationship. I've known shepherds of the flock to get depressed because of the flock. I really have folks. So, so let's, let, let's just press on. So he's a shepherd. He's not a CEO. So here's what I want you to see. Four things I want you to see in this passage. You'll need to go home and read them yourself. Number one, the stress that comes with a broken relationship. That's what he says at the beginning. He says, I, was, I had no rest. I was troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. That I was cast down. He says, my heart's been broken because of this broken relationship. And he's worried about that. Folks, if we have a broken relationship with a brother or sister, I know I've been saying this is a very specific case of a shepherd with a flock. I know that. But I think the principles are universal and they apply. There should be nothing more important to us other than our relationship with the Lord 
in keeping our good relationships with our brothers and sisters. And if we have a disturbed relationship or a broken relationship, do you know what we should do? It should cause us great grief. I've known the Lord's people, some of the Lord's people, that just when things go wrong, they just throw up their hands and say, well, that's just the way it is. It's always going to be like that. I'll never get on with that guy. I'll never... Folks, Paul's saying, listen, when I've got a disturbed relationship, it just breaks my heart. And can I tell you, see when shepherds see broken relationships in the flock, it breaks their heart as well. And one of the great responsibilities of a shepherd amongst the Lord's people is to watch out for broken relationships. I don't mean to examine you, but just be conscious of the dynamics that happen between people. So there's distress in a broken relationship. And that's why Paul says, you know, I went to Troas, there was a door open for the gospel, but you know what? This other thing was too important to me. I was so distressed about it that I actually left off preaching the gospel to try and get this thing sorted out. Then there's the second thing is, so that, that there's a desire for a restoration of a broken relationship. So he's not just distressed about it. His distress is putting in his heart an appetite, a desire to say, let's fix it. Let's fix it. And that's what he's done. How he's, what he's done is he's, he's, he's sent Troas, he sent Titus to Corinth to, to try and fix it to try and find out how they've reacted to his ministry, to try and tell them that Paul's heart is still open to them. Paul's not sent this letter to, to, to destroy them. He sent it to rebuke them for sure, but he's not sent it to destroy them. He's really sent this letter for their good. Paul's saying, I've said some hard things, but I've only said them because they're for your good. They're for your good. Well, you would know Psalm 23, wouldn't you? Thy rod... And thy staff, they comfort me. A true shepherd sometimes has to say some hard things. And some straight things. And some correction things. Isn't that right? But a true shepherd will say them with a shepherd's heart of care and compassion and concern. I remember an instant where a young believer came to a Bible study with a lone list of he had studied the passage he'd prepared the passage he'd got his thoughts in the passage and he, he as soon as he got an opportunity he launched into this long he'd written it all down so he wouldn't get it wrong and he read it out and he just launched into this and he was a young believer and it probably wasn't exactly the interpretation of the passage that that some older man would have given but it was it was good it was good and he had made an effort and he'd made an and one of the elders of the assembly just savaged him. Just savaged him. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul's writing with something straight and something severe and something corrective. But he's writing because he wants their good and their blessing. He's not trying to disrupt the relationship. He's trying to maintain the relationship. And that's why he says, you know, outside were fears, outside were fightings, inside were fears. I was cast down. I just couldn't settle until this relationship was restored and then there's some directives about how to restore a broken relationship you see that they have to know some stuff and they have to grieve about some stuff 
and they have to repent about some stuff. And so there's steps in the restoration of a, a relationship. Relationships are based on truth and trust. Isn't that right? You need to know that when you're in a relationship, people are telling you the truth. Because if you don't think that people are telling you the truth, you can't trust the person. And the, the basis of a relationship is truth and trust. And reconciliation comes when there's a restoration of truth and trust. I'm, I'm, thinking, about, I'm thinking about South Africa, right? Remember what happened in South Africa with the fall of the, um, the apartheid regime? They had years of what they called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because they had to face up to some pretty harsh realities. And before reconciliation could take place, they had to make some big corrections, didn't they? And that's what Paul said here. Listen, I've written to you, and, and, and at first I made you sorry with a letter. He says... As a matter of fact, if you read down it, it says, you know, it almost was, he says, um, verse 8, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. So what he's saying is, as soon as I had sent the letter, I thought, have I done the right thing? That's what he's saying. Have I gone too far? Have I, have I said too much? And let me tell you, folks, when you try and help somebody, that's a difficult balance to get. Sometimes you think maybe you've said too much. And it's easy to say too much and push somebody far away, isn't it? But Paul saying, now that I've heard your response, I realise I didn't push you too far. It was hard for me to say what I said, but I know now that it was right to say what I said. So there's a, a, there's a, a distress at a broken relationship. There's a desire for a restored relationship. And there's directives for a broken relationship. And then right at the end, do you know what they've got? He's got delight at a restored relationship. That's the point of this passage. He's saying, Titus came, gave me some good news, and I breathed a big sigh of relief. And I thought, it's all okay. It's all okay. Folks, isn't that really what we're striving after? We're striving after clean clear air between us and all the Lord's people. And if there is a broken relationship, well, you need to think, how do you react to that? Does that distress you? If it doesn't distress you, you need to think about your own relationship with the Lord, to be quite honest with you. Have you got a desire for restored relationships? And you do understand there's directives to restore relationships, don't you? You, know, you can't just pretend it didn't happen. You've got, to, you've got to... If you've grieved somebody, you need to seek forgiveness. Isn't that right? And forgiveness comes in two ways. Uh, forgiveness comes in principle. In other words, somebody can do something to you and you can principle forgive them, right? But that doesn't restore the relationship. Somebody has... If there's been a breach... Uh, if I do something to do this, I know he'll forgive me. I know because that's the way he is. But until I go and say sorry to Duduzi, the relationship's not restored. Isn't that right? And if I never go and say sorry to Duduzi, and I maintain my stance of stubbornness and rejection against him, even though he's forgiven me in his heart, our relationship's still strained and still broken because I have a responsibility to come to him. And Paul's saying, listen, when I wrote to you, do you know what kind of response you had? You had a godly response. 
You responded the way a spiritual person would. You had godly sorrow unto repentance. And you know what happens? Not to be repented of. And he says this. Though I made you certain. Look at this. Verse number seven. When Titus comes, he was comforting you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that I rejoiced more. When, when Titus came, he said to Paul, Paul, these folks love you. These folks love you. And he says, look, they, 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 they're loyal to you. They're, 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 they've got a desire for you. They're mourning in their sin. They've got zeal in their mind for you. They, they, they love you. They love you. I wanted to pick out that word, your fervent mind, in verse number 7. It's actually the same word as in verse number 11. And it means the word zeal. Zeal. There's nothing more valuable to people than loyalty, folks. Isn't that right? Loyalty. And Paul's saying, Titus has come back and he said, even though I've said some hard things, you're still loyal to me. I wonder if we are loyal people. We've got to be loyal to the Lord. I know that. But what about being loyal to the company of the Lord's people? Eh? What about saying, you know, these are the people of the Lord that I'm going to associate myself with and I'm going to be loyal to them. And I'm going to be loyal to God's testimony because this word zeal, how can I describe it? Zeal has actually got two sides to it, right? Zeal is not enthusiasm, folks. You can be enthusiastic without being zealous, can you? You can be uh, energetic without being zealous. Zealous means you have love for something and you hate anything that impinges on that. So zeal is a two-sided emotion. It's a love and a hate. Let me, let me explain what I mean. John 2. John 2, the Lord goes into the temple. And, he quotes, and, and John quotes the psalm, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. So what does the Lord do? He loves the Lord's house. He loves the Lord's people. He loves getting together with the Lord. The Lord's glory is all that matters to him. That's what he loves. That's what he loves. But because he loves that above all things, he hates anything that will impinge on that. So when these people come into the temple and they start to corrupt it and they start to make it their own and they start to do things in it that they shouldn't do, what does the Lord do? Kind, gracious, meek and mild. What does the Lord do? He turns them out. He overthrows the, he overthrows the money changers and he says, and he quotes the verse, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Because zeal is not enthusiasm. Zeal is devotion to something that hates anything that impinges on it for its good and its glory. I love there's a group of young Indian Christians. You know what they call themselves? You know what they call themselves? What do they call themselves? Zealous for Jesus. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that lovely? What does that mean? They've got the Lord's glory at heart. They love the Lord. And they hate anything that will steal from that in their life. Right? Zeal's a good thing, folks. I just want to finish off challenging myself. Am I a zealous Christian? Zealous for the Lord. But I'm a zealous for the relationships that the Lord has formed. I'm as zealous for the relationships between my brothers and sisters. Do I love their relationships so much that anything else that impinges on that or spoils it, I hate it. I hate it. I hate anything that will get between me and you. 
What about this little testimony for the Lord Jesus here? The little group of Christians, the assembly that meets at Bensham Gospel Hall. Now, forget the hall. We could meet anywhere, right? You know what I mean. Are you zealous for that wee company? What do I mean? I don't mean are you enthusiastic for it? Are you committed to it? I don't mean that. Are you zealous for the little testimony of the Lord Jesus here? In other words, do you love it so much that anything in your life that would impinge on your commitment to that and dedication to that, you hate it. I'll get rid of that and I'll commit myself to it. So Paul says, listen, Titus brought me some great news. I was depressed and I was cast down, but the cloud has lifted because I know the relationship has been restored. May the Lord help us to keep good relationships with each other, folks, and give us the courage that if relationships are spoiled, we'll do the right thing so that they're restored for the glory of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for time together, for remembering the Lord and for studying thy word. And we pray that it may have all been a glory for thee. And if we've gleaned a little along the way, Lord, to encourage us, to bless us, maybe to correct us, we'll give thee the glory too. So thank you, Lord, for the time together, for the little refreshment that's been provided. We pray for folks that are not with us this morning. We commit them to thee. Some are unwell. Some are really cast down. We pray for them. Some have responsibilities. We do particularly remember Norma and her recovery and pray that that may go well. And we just ask for thy blessing now as we finish in the Lord's name. Amen.